Hello, welcome to Human Tech, a podcast about the intersection between humans and technology. My name is Guthrie. I'm here with Susan. Hi, Susan. Hi, Guthrie. And we have a special guest today. We do. We have Danielle Cooley. And Danielle, um, I, you're going to hear about a bunch about Danielle. I'll just say that, to start us off that she has uh, her own consultancy company. It's called DG Cooley & Co. and Company. And um, I'm really excited to have Danielle here. Danielle is, so first of all, just say hi, Danielle, so they hear your voice. Hi. Because <laughs> um, I was going to start talking right away. So I don't even know, Danielle, how long we've known each other. We meet about once a year at some conference or other. Yes. I, right? And sometimes we email in between and talk on the phone in between. But how long have we been... <laughs> doing this conference meeting do you even know i am going to guess somewhere between eight and ten years yeah it's been a while we've met at uxpa sometimes and we've Mm -hmm. met at um the uh oh boy internet user experience experience, am i doing that right yeah Mm -hmm. that's that's been mainly in ann arbor i think there was one in one or two in arizona i wasn't at those and um yeah, so we've heard each other talk, and we always have these animated conversations. And we were just all together at um, UXPA. Yeah, you we, and Guthrie. Yeah, we Guthrie, you UXPA. were there. I was there. We talked at UXPA. Rave and, reviews. Uh, who got rave reviews? Did you see the the Excel? We got that? rave reviews. We're going. So we're going to say how wonderful we are. I like that. You we didn't. Did you didn't the, read the Excel doc with all the. Of uh, course, I did. Oh, okay. I want to know what my fans say. Mm. Yeah, we actually did get rave reviews, but um, we we ran into Dan. Didn't run into it, but we saw Danielle there, sat down, and had some good conversations. And uh, and here we are. So Danielle, you have an interesting background because you know I've always known you or thought of you as kind of this user testing guru because. Um, what f- I think when I've heard you talk, a lot of times you're talking about user testing. So you know, I just assumed that's you know, what, what your specialty is. And that may or may not be true. You can set me straight on that. But then at one time when we were talking a couple of years ago, you started telling me about your like biomed background or something. Yes. Talk yes. about that a little bit. So my undergraduate degree is in biomedical and electrical engineering. And I never really worked in those fields, but uh, soon after sort of veered into the UX domain. Wow. And and um, where did you do your undergraduate work? Vanderbilt. So this is a serious engineering person. Yeah, you, I was. You, 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 have a, you have that engineering mindset that always boggles my brain because I, I don't think I'm an engineer. I don't think I think like an engineer. But you have, have so did you get to, have you been able to do like user testing on like, biomed stuff? I've done a little bit with medical devices, which seems to be sort of the best intersection there. Uh, And I, I enjoy that a lot. And I enjoy a lot of, on a lot of levels, I enjoy a lot of things about that. Um, And yeah, that's, that's really the only intersection. Um, I, I like to say that biomedical engineering is about bridging the gap between people and technology, whether that's uh, an amputated limb with a prosthetic, you know, uh, 
part of that limb um, or, you know, a testing machine to like an echocardiogram, right? So bioelectric signals to the technology that interprets those. And then of course, the psychological aspect, we're still connecting people to technology. And so yeah. it, it's, it flows a little better than it seems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you've been doing user testing for a while, a, yes. a pretty long while. You, yes. you know a lot about it. And we've talked about user testing. I think, Guthrie, in some of our episodes, we've just kind of talked about user testing. So tell me about what you think. Like, sometimes I think that that user testing doesn't ever change. You know, there's like this basic these basic things you do with user testing. Um, you know, Steve Krug has his wonderful little demo videos, right, about mm -hmm. doing a user test. And those are several years old, but it doesn't matter, <laughs> you know, because, I mean, the things that you're testing change, but the process doesn't change. And so sometimes I think that, you know, it doesn't change and that's, a, that's good, that that's the way it's supposed to be. And then sometimes I wonder if, you know, is it changing or should it be changing? So what's what's your view on that? Do you think like user testing is just this this skill, it's this technique, it's this, you know, process that's been around now for decades. Right. It's like one of the most stable, mature things we do in the field of, you know, user experience and usability. Or do you think that it's like behind the times and we need to we need to change it up? Uh, I certainly don't think it's behind the times. I think we aren't doing enough of it in general. I I do. Did think we ever do enough of it? Probably not, but I think okay. we're doing even less now. You think we're doing less now? Okay, okay. I, I do. Um, I agree I, I with guess, that, by the way. Oh, you do right. agree, yeah. Catherine? Yes, I agree. Yeah. Um, there there seems to be more of a rise of sort of the the omnipotent omniscient design God who just, you know, <laughs> makes these decisions or, you know, that it's something that people sort of shortcut and rely on quote unquote best practices instead of getting direct information about their own product and their own user base. So, yeah. Or, or I think the other trend that just keeps growing and growing is like AB testing which is, a, I mean, I'm, it's a great thing. There's no problem with A-B testing. But yeah, I agree with you. It's interesting because there's like more UX teams and more people on UX teams and yet less what, what I think you and I would consider, you know, real user testing. Yes. The research, any, any user contact is, I think, getting less and less. And uh, some of the bigger, more mature companies still do quite a bit of it, but I would still think not nearly as much compared to the body of product they produce, right? So like Facebook, for example, has a very large research team, but there's still, I'm sure, a lot of stuff that comes out of Facebook that doesn't go through research. Because there's so much more products, so many more yes. apps, so much, so many more pieces of products, and so even if you did the same amount of testing, the percentage of stuff that you are doing user testing on would, by nature, be going down. Yes, 
Yeah, yeah, I tend to agree with you. Um, have you been dabbling at all in the any of the new stuff? Like we were just having a conversation with a potential client yesterday, and um, one of their you know people wanted to to get into. Uh, you know, the biometrics, the, the e- testing, doing user testing with EEG and uh, uh, galvanic skin response and things like that. So ha- do you have clients that, that ask for that or um, <laughs> do you not even bring it up? Or I don't. I don't have clients who ask for that. Um, you know, that... I think is wonderful. And I think it gives you a lot of great information and even a lot of actionable information if you're willing to take action on it. But uh, my clients are not typically looking for that level of insight. Yeah. Yeah. What about, uh, all right. So uh, I'm just thinking about all the little offshoots and branches of user testing. So what about eye tracking? Eye tracking? Yeah. What is your what is your take on whether eye tracking is useful, worth it? It has its place, right? Um, and it's become so much more affordable now and more reliable, right? I mean, I, I'm sure you remember when it would take 30 minutes per participant just to calibrate the eye tracking device. <laughs> right. right. So that that became a really big investment that you had to think hard about, and it's much much easier and better now. Um, but to me, there's always that, you know, you go to look for the ketchup in the refrigerator and you look and you look and you look and you realize you've stared at it over and over again and not seen it. Right. Yeah. What you yeah. look at so is not they, the same as what you see. Right. Looking at does not mean paying attention. Right. right? So and then there's the I whole, try. I give the whole spiel about, you know, it's only central vision. It's not peripheral vision. And we know peripheral vision is really important. Yeah. So, um, I like to say I'm I'm uh, not at all popular at uh, eye tracking. Eye tracking, yeah. <laughs> I actually was at. I mean, seriously, I actually was asked to give a talk at an eye tracking conference. Yeah, and you're like, this is not a good idea. Yeah, I was really popular. Not, not. I think that there were people in the audience that were pretty upset with me. But, you know, I they knew, at, the, the conference knew ahead of time what I was going to talk about. I mean, I didn't, I didn't keep, I don't you think. You didn't spring anything on them? I don't know. Maybe I did. I don't remember. It was quite a while ago. Yeah. So, um, all right. Tell me about whether, you know, there's obviously been, well, maybe not obviously, there's been a lot of growth in the, in the tool space of user testing, especially in terms of, you know, remote user testing, right? Yes. And um, so I wonder, you know, how how you feel about remote user test remote user testing. I mean, I think a lot of our audience will know this, but I should not assume that. So I'll just say, um, you know, in a t- in what I consider a, I'm doing air quotes, typical user test, uh, you've got. A uh, facilitator is, um, you know, in person, uh, either in the same room or maybe they go out into the observation room and the user is by themselves and they are doing uh, the in front of whatever device and they're doing uh, tasks that they're being given to do. And the uh, 
Uh, lots of different ways to do this, right? The facilitator can be in the room and asking them questions as they do it, like, uh, you know, can you tell me why you clicked on that button or do you see anything else on the screen that would allow you to do X or Y, right? Um, kind of the uh, Steve Krug's method. Uh, sometimes the facilitator is in another room and just watching and then might come in later and um, ask some questions about what they did. But, you, you know, you've got the person uh, and the uh, you've got the user and the facilitator together in person. Another option is they're together in time and but not in space, right? Yes. So you're doing, uh, you know, you're having the conversation over, you know, some kind of WebEx or Zoom or Skype or so you can hear them. Maybe you can see them, maybe not. Maybe they can see you, maybe not. But you're there together and you can still like have a conversation together. And that would be what we would call, you know, moderated in-person or moderated remote testing. But now we have all these tools we have for a while that allow us to prepare the tasks and then someone is doing them by, you know, the task comes up on the screen and they do it and they talk out loud and uh, no one's there with them. And typically these are shorter instead of an hour, they might just be 15 or 20 minutes. So what is your, do, do you use both methods and what do you think are, you know, how, what, what do you think about, um, do you think, you, and I know there's actually been some research about whether the results are similar or not similar. Well, I'd like your take on it. Uh, yes. So I use all three methods, in-person, moderated, remote moderated, and remote unmoderated, the three you just went over. Um, it, you know, they all tell you something slightly different. Yeah, well, you know, remote in-person moderated, you get, you're still in the lab environment, right? So there's, there's still something missing. The context of use is missing, but you can see the person's whole body language, right? You can see if they're tapping their fingers or if they're shaking their foot or something that may be indicating some level of frustration or confusion um, that you can't see in a remote moderated session because at best you're you've got sort of a headshot right from a webcam yeah so so you lose a little bit there i would suggest that the trade-off is usually worth it and most of my work now is remote moderated studies so uh it just costs a lot of money of course to get a research team out to people people to you uh, the logistics are harder, all of those things. Um, but that's, you know, you gain there and you lose a little bit of that context. Uh, the remote unmoderated, um, of course, you lose all of that pretty much. And, and of course, there's sort of two twists on the remote unmoderated as well. So you were referring to the shorter ones where people record themselves using whatever tool you're testing, right? Um, but there's also just sort of the data collection version of that, that measures task completion, time on task, and then they can type in additional comments if they so desire. So, and then that gives you, a, it gives you the opportunity to get a higher N if you need that, um, because the people aren't recording themselves necessarily and, and they can take a shorter amount of time. Uh, it's, it's much more affordable. Um, 
but then of so course, you can maybe run like you know 20 or 30 people rather than yes, eight or 10 yes um and it the even better part is it sort of does the analysis for you and that you get a nice little pie chart of who successfully completed the task and who didn't and how long it took them and uh, sort of how many uh, wrong answers they got, which. But you can't follow up with them, right? You can't have that conversation. You can't. No. Uh, That that of course is the other big part that in a moderated session, you've got some back and forth. Someone says, Hmm, you can say, tell me more about, Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. If you're just looking at a recording later, you don't get Or you can have a whole conversation about, you know, why did you take that path? So, so when you're trying to decide, you know, you've got a client, right? Who says, we want to do some user testing and you jump up and down and go, yay. (laughs) And, uh, um, Do you you think that decision about, you know, okay, we're going to do it remote moderated or we're going to do it remote unmoderated or or we're going to do it in person, et cetera, is that based, like, do do you ever get to give them a recommendation or is it mainly just, it's like based on time and budget and given their time and budget and given the fact that they say they really want to run 30 people, you know that you're doing, you know, remote unmoderated. It's almost always time and budget. Yeah. You know, they, yeah, it's, I, and, and do you run into situations where they're doing it remote unmoderated and you, you're like, I wish they would do this. You know, I wish we could have more of a conversation with these people. That doesn't come up for me too much. Okay. Um, and I'll say the ones that do come to mind, remote, unmoderated, was the way to go. It, okay. it was the right choice for those It was projects. the right choice for them. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's good. That's good. So do you think that um, that... Uh, yeah, I'm just grilling you on this stuff. I feel like I'm like, okay, next question. I feel a little grilled. It's okay. Okay, Break I'm it. gonna. I'll stop <laughs> grilling you. Uh, let, let's let's do a. Let, I, I I just I have all these questions. Well, <laughs> I'm happy to talk about this. But I have a user testing person to talk to about it. No, no, no. Let's talk about let's talk about something a little uh, a little tangential. If you. Uh, or maybe you'll feel I'm grilling you again. If you could change, you know, if you could have an ideal user testing world, you know, if something could change about the tools or, or whatever, you know, what, what would you change? What would you like to, what would make, what do you think would make user testing even more powerful than it is? A little more, education and understanding it's not a tool thing so much or a technique thing yeah Um, it's more you know to your point understanding the differences between these different you know larger categories of methods and when you should use each and for people to make research decisions based on that right on the research question and what is the best way to answer that question rather than what can we do in a week Right, right. Um, it would be great. And then the other issue that I see a lot is 
the level of prototype you're using for this study. How so, how so? You mean they're not? It's not detailed enough, or it's too detailed, or what? It's just wrong for the question you're trying to answer. Yeah. Give. Can you give us an example? I mean, I know I don't want to make you talk about client things that you shouldn't be talking about, but um, is can you give us an example of what you mean of a of a of a question and the the wrong level of prototype? Sure. So the. The one that's come up the most for me, although it can go in either direction, right, is that people want to test interactivity and task flow, but they have a mostly static prototype. So it's so, not a it's not a really uh, uh, fleshed out interactive prototype. So it's not like people can actually go and click on things and go here and fill in this form the way it would be in real life. Mm-hmm. So they're looking at kind of static pages and they can only do a few things. Is that what you mean? Yes. So they're static pages. Maybe people have mocked up a few happy paths, you know, or the correct way to do something and maybe one or two incorrect partial paths, but it can very much get into, um, it, they can't do it wrong. Right. Yeah. That, right. You're not really seeing the way people would move through that. Right. And yet that's kind of what they said they wanted to test. Right. Yeah. yeah. And then I actually have an article about that in uh, interactions, a case study where that came up and uh, it was, you know, we, we ran a usability study and then we did of a redesign that was coming and then we did a benchmark on the existing product and then the redesign, really all the metrics plummeted, right? So yeah, uh, it was okay. Granted, we only did this one study to see what was going on, but there was nothing there that raised huge red flags that would suggest the results we got in the benchmark and comparison studies. So I took a look and it really was that the people couldn't do it wrong. And so we didn't see them doing it wrong. We didn't see them being confused. You mean the Uh, first time? Right. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So your benchmark was not a benchmark of, it wasn't the same. You you were kind of comparing apples and oranges. Well, no, no, sorry. Let me clarify. There were three studies. So during the redesign process, we did a qualitative usability study of a prototype of the new design. Okay, okay. And then they had about six months to make changes based on the results of that study. And they did make some changes. But that study, you know, was like, yeah, well, you know, let's change a few things, but it seems like it's not going to be, you know, it's fine. And then we did a benchmark of the existing site right right before the redesign and then we followed up with a comparison study after the new one was launched so yeah it was it was really interesting and it was because of the prototype yeah you know I think there's so many um you know it's so interesting I mean user testing on some levels doesn't seem I don't know, maybe because I've been doing it so long. It doesn't seem that complicated, you know? It's like uh, compared to 
some of the other things we do in, in UX work or in user research work. But then when you really get into it, it's really nuanced and there's so many things you can do, I don't know if I want to say wrong, but I probably should, but just not well. Like that's one of them, right? There's a mismatch between the questions you want answered and the level of prototype you have. Another one I know you you find, or maybe you don't because maybe you do this for the client so you do it right, but is the question of, um, of exactly uh, how to word the tasks. Yes. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like, I, and I, I teach user testing a lot because I teach, you know, I'm an adjunct at at uh, University of Wisconsin, one of the campuses, and and a lot of times, depending on the course, you know, we do we do a section on user testing, and so I just know, you know, it sounds so easy, and everyone's like, oh yeah, 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 we got this, we got this, and then they then you know now it's time to write you know, the, the little task scenario and the specific text, task instructions. And, you know, that's another thing where based on the wording that you've used, you're going to, you're testing really different things. And it's easy to, you know, word it, it, two things that I think are easy to go wrong. One is that you've got some wording in there that then uh, is misleading or gives things away. You know, you say to people, you know, can you find where to go to to uh, register? And, you know, there's just a big button that says register. So why did you word it that way? You know, um, uh, or the other the other thing that is even, you know, I see a lot of is that the question back to this thing about, you know, the questions you're asking, the prototype didn't match the questions you're asking. The que- the tasks you give them to do don't match the really the questions you have about the product yes you know so yeah. why did you ask them to to do that uh you know and i'm constantly saying all right so what is it you want to know do you want to know whether for instance do you want to know whether they can find where to go do that or do you want to know whether they even thought that that was something you know they might want to do and that's like different and you have to word it differently and it, it gets complicated. And, and there's sort of a twist on usability study um, where it's much more open-ended, right? And you don't necessarily have this list of tasks. It's just sort of, let's find out what people would do here on their own, you know? And, and of course you recruit for the target audience and all of that, but it's more, letting them explore on their own or say, you know, buy something and see what they go, what thought process they go through, right. To sort of shop and narrow their choices and make a buying decision and move forward like that versus, you know, us saying buy the blue sweater that one is sort of a utility question. Can they buy the blue sweater? And the other one is a little bit more of a, um, exploratory experience question, if you will. So I've spent a lot of time recently very deep in all of this for (laughs) a few reasons. Um, One is that I participated in Rolf Mollick's CUE workshop last year, where we, the focus of, it was CUE 10, and the focus was usability. What what does CUE stand for? 
comparative usability evaluation. Okay. And he's been doing these for 20 years. Uh, this is the 10th in the series and each one basically <laughs> pits practitioners against one another, not exactly, but compares uh, how different practitioners approach different aspects of usability testing or usability evaluation or uh, expert review. So um, he's kind of doing research on on the researchers on user on the researchers, right, right. Mm-hmm. So the focus of CUE 10 was usability test moderation. And so there were 16 people who each moderated three sessions uh, for the Ryanair website. Ryanair is a budget airline in Europe. And he provided the moderator's guide in the task list. So in theory, you know, we all started with the same thing. We're using the same script to test the same site. And we had to record ourselves moderating these sessions and then watch each other's recordings, right? And go through a, uh, we did a one day workshop. It was, it's a little over a year ago now we did that workshop, but it was really (laughs) interesting to sit in a room for like seven hours and debate whether you should ask participants for honest comments or candid comments, right? This was sort of the level of detail where we were. Oh my God. Okay. Interesting or painful to do that for seven hours. (laughs) It was. And everyone has, I bet everyone had really strong opinions. Uh, Most people had really strong opinions. (laughs) Uh, Most people's opinions didn't change, although that's one that I don't ask for honest anymore. I ask for candid. Interesting. Um, Then there's, so for example, Steve Krug maintains that you should never use the word feedback. You don't want feedback. You want comments um, because feedback is, you know, I like this color or I think you should move this button over here which is, of course, not the type of information we're necessarily looking for from a study participant. Um, so that, that kind of thing. And in watching these videos from other practitioners, which was an amazing education in um, you know, differences and similarities, uh, it was really interesting to me how nuanced it was. Right. So we would we went through and analyzed these videos very carefully and say, okay, at three minutes and 22 seconds in, the participant said this and the moderator did this. And that was an unnecessary intervention or a helpful intervention. And there were probably a dozen or more codes that we had to to use to code these videos. So and of course, multiple practitioners reviewed the same video and made comments about the same instance. And it was very interesting that the disagreement, right, and the difference between jumping in too soon or providing a helpful nudge was maybe a fraction of a second, right? Wow. So, it, <laughs> wow. Really so wait a minute. So if you have all these people who are experts, right, these were not novices, Correct. These there are was one student team, but yes. Most, for the mm-hmm. most part, these were all, 
experienced people doing the sessions, experienced people watching the videos. So if this group does not agree, what hope is there for <laughs> Well, I don't. I don't think there's hope for that. I don't think there's hope for agreement. I think you mean, we're, so. Where everyone's not everyone, but there's just. I know there are these different schools of thought about the best method. So, do you think that that's a problem that there isn't agreement? I think. I think at that level, it's it's okay, right? I I don't like it, but. Um, it is what it is. That's the perfectionist in me, right? Like if I can say, okay, a fraction of a second is the difference between this and that, then that's probably a reasonable level of uh, margin of error, right? Yeah. Um, if, if it's sort of a bigger question and should we do this or that, or was this appropriate or not? Uh, I think, you know, if, if there was a whole second or two seconds involved, then that would be cause for more alarm. Uh, if the margin of error were bigger. And, you know, what these studies have found is that the differences can be pretty large, uh, but also that they may not matter so much in that, yeah. it, well, you know, the question, right, how many participants to test? Right. Five to eight is still a good number. Five to eight per user group is still a good number to me because you'll get consistent results and you will find way more stuff than you have the time or budget to address. Yeah, so, yeah you're right, right. I see what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, you could, you, sure, you can, you could run twenty people per per user group, or I call them cells. But then you're going to have so much data, you won't even. I mean, practically, practically speaking, you're not going to act right. on every little thing. Now, um, I have another thing I want to talk to you about about the the differences between the experts but Guthrie I want to bring you into this conversation because I know Danielle and I are just going Poor going Guthrie. going going but Guthrie you you uh you got school your, guys you know all about user testing yeah but you got to part you know you so Guthrie's I've back done now. I've done some user testing you've done some user testing so so you know what what's your thought did you did you what about doing the user testing because he's much newer at this Danielle because it's just not you know his background is is uh, behavioral economics and so on not necessarily UX and, and user testing so what did, was there anything about you know I know we did some user testing oh, it was kind of about a year ago was there anything about that that surprised you about the process or the results or um, see now I'm grilling him Danielle, yeah, grilling you. I, honestly, I don't think so. I mean, I expected to. How do I say this? The the user testing we were doing, we were doing sort of a raw, a more raw product that was not complete. That was still being designed. really not complete. That yeah. was not, that we was were, in its infancy. And we and, were kind of doing a combination of user testing and interviewing. Really. Yeah, and so I expected uh, to hear some interesting stuff. Um, yeah, and. I think I was, I mean, I was surprised by sort of the variety of the different interviewers, uh, interviewees. Yeah. Um, I think I was expecting a lot more consistency. And yeah. in, in our particular case, there wasn't. Um, but I don't know. I, I was like, I bet you this is going to be useful. And it was useful. I suppose the only thing that did surprise me was how long everything took to 
do the actual interviews. There were so many people taking notes, but then afterwards, the summation of the notes and the um, the analysis, the analysis, and, and mm-hmm. oh, what is the, okay? So they said this, but that means X or Y. Yeah, you. So were I was surprised by, by just the amount it of. It's sort of like if you ever know anyone who uh, makes art. Like we walk around, it's like, oh, it's a painting or a sculpture or something, you know, whatever the piece of art is. Yeah. When we're like, yeah, I bet you that was hard. But like, if you actually have ever, <laughs> like, done any art or, or or hung out with an artist while they're doing it, um, or uh, like a video game or um, making music, and just like the amount of like time and Anything. effort that's yeah. put into every little detail. Um, but of course, you know, the end product. You know, you're like, okay, that was cool. Uh, so I, I think I underestimated the amount of work it all was. And especially to... Um, the the one thing that I guess I learned... Because it's sort of like diminishing returns. Like, you could put in an endless amount of time doing a user test and user testing. And, you know... You'll get you'll get something new out of every hour you put in. Re-listening to the video and re you know thinking about better questions or interviewing more people, but as but the, you get like diminishing returns each time. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, is this uh, the behavioral economist talking? <laughs> He's like, so. is is it worth it to keep analyzing more data, or have That's a we great, great lens to look at this through? I think it, between. Um, wanting to get involved in the details, right? About how precise is this? Yeah, thing and I'm just being versus just being uber practical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think I'm more of a. Uh, we we struggled on this one project. I I'm thinking of because you were being practical, which was really good. But and I was being like perfectionist. You know, like let's mm-hmm. let's get every squeeze every single and possible we were, insight. And out we were of on a data. budget too, unfortunately. We were on a budget, so uh, the practical was the better way to go. But I kept you know wanting wanting more. So yeah, uh, that's uh that's a that's a dilemma that you you often run into, right? I think it, just the realities of doing this in industry mean we're always sort of looking at that and maximizing the amount of information we get out of the time and money we invest in that. Um, and those, so those diminishing returns matter. And they, there's a point at which it's not worth it to do more testing. Yeah. Right. Well, or or the the whoever is bankrolling your years of testing is like, hey guys, we only have enough for X. Or even yeah. just analyzing, not even running more people, just analyzing the data that you have, can, mm-hmm. you know, because that can take forever. So I was, I don't know, Daniel, if I ever told you the story, Catherine, I don't know if I ever told you this story either. So. Uh, Early on in in my user testing career, um, I worked with a uh, someone who was more experienced at user testing than I was at the time, and um, we had and she I think she had brought me in to help out with one of her projects, and we had this big discussion about because you were mentioning about you know commenting or nudging people along, and um, we had this discussion about whether you, 
you know, it, someone's doing, you, you, they're, they're at a site, they're at a banking site, you've given them a task to do, they are taking a really long time at it, they're not getting it, they don't understand it, right? And how long do you let them go trying to do that task, Yeah. right? Before you just interrupt them or give them a nudge or something because, you know, maybe you're in the middle, you know, it's the f- middle of the, of the user test session and, you know, they're going to take the rest of the test session trying to do this one task and never get to anything else. And so I had always been fairly practical about that, you know, like I'd let them go a few minutes, but then if it seemed like it wasn't going anywhere, right, and I'm not getting any new data from it, I might stop them or tell them to, to move on and so on. And this person I was working with said, oh, no, you never stop them, never. And I was like, what? <laughs> and she said, you never stop them. You know, if they take the entire rest of the session trying to do the test, you let them take the rest of the session. And I was like, okay, that's way too extreme. But I actually decided to use it on a project. And it was a banking application. And it was a really, it, it was the most, one of the most painful sessions. <laughs> A series of sessions I've ever done, but I let it play out because here's what happened, you know, and, and this was her point was you won't know how long it really takes them. And so we had the situation where, um, it was taking people, you know, like 20 to 30 minutes bef- to try and do this task. And then even when they thought they were done, they hadn't done it correctly. And if we had stopped them after like four or five minutes, we wouldn't have known how really bad that was. Do you know what I mean? But would you have known it was bad and that it needed to be fixed? No, I don't. I think in this particular case, these people, and I don't, you know, this was a long time ago, and I don't know if things have changed or not, but there there were stakeholders that wanted to say, it's really not that bad, and people will get used to it, and we'll give them some training. And if it took, and, and if if we had stopped them and had them move on, and it was a question of it took three to four minutes to do that, they might have gotten away with that. But the fact that the average amount of time was 20 minutes, it was a showstopper. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't know if it would have been a showstopper if we hadn't logged that much time. Now, I've never, I've never been able to bring myself to do it again. <laughs> but I did do it that one time. And it was really interesting. So it's, a, it's an interesting question. It is. I mean, have you ever done that? Just let them? I have not. I mean, I'll say now uh, a stakeholder would be upset that we didn't get data about other activities, right? So you you plan your study or you say, we're going to learn about these three things. And the first task takes the whole session. You don't learn about the other two things. Then you haven't delivered what you promised, right? So that's where I think the disconnect would be this time. Um, But, I mean, clearly, sometimes people really need a strong story or data set to get over the the denial, which is a natural and common thing. Yeah. 
Yeah, there's a lot of denial. Do people still, because I, 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 I don't do a lot of user testing uh, I, I, anymore. I, I actually wish I could do a little more than I do, but we don't often get that, that request. But do people, um, do you still have like, like, you know, certain stakeholders are observing the sessions or get the results, <clears throat> and then they say things like, well, you know, these are these users are just dumb, or uh, after they get training, they'll be fine. Or is that does that still go on? Certainly, that still goes on. Oh, somehow I thought we'd evolved from there. We haven't. We're fighting <laughs> the same battles that our forebears fought <laughs> forty years ago. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm on a lot of message boards and things. Uh, and, and it's like, oh, we just need to educate people. And all I can think of is, you know, we've been, <laughs> people have been saying that for decades. And that's clearly, we've got to do something different if we're going to expect a different result. <laughs> all right. I want to change gears entirely. Okay. Because when we were at UXPA, you brought out this little bag and in the little bag was a little mini, I mean, we're talking like, you know, four inches by five inches or it's something. It's five inches square, yeah. Oh, yeah, it was close. A five-inch square set of innovative bed linens. Yes. Guthrie, were you there? I don't think you were there during this, were you? Uh, I was around, but I, I think I was off doing other you were business, business -y during the uh, reception. Things. Yeah, so Danielle has this idea. Is it? Are you still in? You're still prototyping, and I mean, this is still going on. Well, I mean, oh yes, it's still going on. I'm looking okay. for manufacturers to bring yeah. it to scale, but in the interim, I am fulfilling custom orders starting. You are. Yeah. Yeah. <gasps> How exciting! Mm -hmm. So she has the. She kind of did a design thinking. <laughs> <laughs> process it, it seems solved the to problem me. Mm -hmm. um about about uh bed linens and it's kind of so i don't know how much you do or don't want to you know get maybe it's a secret you don't want to give away no oh, it's, you, it's patent pending so it's patent in pending theory the intellectual property is protected and we can't show them because we're audio only, but you want to kind of, do, you want to tell us what you felt the problem was and then sure. how you think this f solves the problem? Yeah. And, and we can put a link in the show notes if you'd like um, to the site that explains it a little bit more. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah. But the problem, there's multiple problems. One is top sheet. So many people don't use a top sheet because they're so frustrated with it coming untucked, looking messy, getting tangled in their feet while they sleep, getting bunched up at the top of their bed or the bottom of their bed. So they just don't use one, which then leads them to sleep under just a duvet and cover, which apparently nearly all of Europe also does. So it's not that unusual globally, but in the US it's sort of a new thing. Um, but then that's a problem because no one wants to wrestle a duvet insert into a cover. Uh, that's a big pain in the butt. And it, it is a big pain in the butt. I mean, I recently, um, you know, did the laundry and so took my 
my quilt out of my cover and it has still hasn't gotten back in. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, so you're tempted to wash it less often, even though you're sleeping or never sleep. put it back Maybe. on. No, but right. I do have, I do have the, the top sheet. I, I'll say that. That's true. All right. right. So then what, what are there other problems? Uh, certainly there's the making the bed in the morning takes a long yeah. time arranging yeah. all those layers of bedding. Yeah. Uh, the duvet insert tends to shift inside the cover. It does. It does. Yes. Um, so all of those things magically get solved with this one. <laughs> this, what I've done is basically taken the top sheet and the duvet insert and what I call a decorative layer and combined them. Uh, they attach together with a series of snaps and the top sheet sort of folds over the top so that it looks folded over like you see when you go into a hotel, for example. And so the only part of your body that ever touches it, the only thing that ever touches your body is that we call it the touch layer, uh, the top sheet equivalent. And then when you want to wash it, you just unsnap it, throw it in the wash, snap it back on, and you're done. Um, the, li the little five-inch prototype was, it was great. And you could... Yeah, you could tell right away. And I just, I, you know, I can't, I, I want one of these. Yeah. Well, I definitely want one of these. Uh, so I just thought that was so interesting to take your, de, your, this is kind of like your design background, your, you know, all the things you've learned about design by doing usability and UX work. And then I think you actually, whether you you know you meant to or not, put your a little bit of your engineering background, right? Yeah. Into engineering a solution and uh, and came up with this. So um, yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to uh, being being able to try this out. And so, how are you? Are you uh, how are you dividing your time between the the user testing and the uh, what do you call this thing? Uh, it's trio bedding. Trio bedding mm -hmm. between the tree. I think of it as a bedding sandwich. So that's a good how, way to think of it. <laughs> how are you dividing your time? Are you doing, you know, 50 50 or uh, roughly? Uh, you know, consulting waxes and wanes heavily. So uh, some months I'm 90% consulting and some months I'm 90% trio bedding yeah. as these things evolve. So yeah, it, it varies a bit. Right now, it's probably close to 50-50. Yeah. That's so you, have, have you found this fun or just like yes. really hard work? I, yeah, I was telling someone I need to set alarms so that I remember to stop and drink water while I'm working on it. That much fun. Yeah, that much fun. Um, wow. You know, it's neat to solve problems and, and see something after you've done it and... Uh, just, you know, start to get things to make something, you know, yeah, and see, now get it out to the world. on the uh, product manager side. Yes. So are you doing user testing on the trio bedding? Yes, uh, <laughs> I have. I have six. Um, I call them full size, which is tough, right, in the bedding world because there's full size, queen size, king size. Yeah, but, yeah. You know, bed size bedding. There are six beta versions out in the world. That huh. I'm getting feedback on, and really, there's 
there's not much more evolution to be happening. Like we're ready to go to production. Wow. Yeah. So anybody out there knows a Bedlin manufacturer who would be interested in taking this on. Yeah. Bring it. If you know one, let let us know. (laughs) Guthrie, do you want one? Are you interested in the, in the trio bedding? What do you think that fits you or not? Sure. It's okay if it doesn't. I mean, I, I'm having, I'll, See you. You make. I haven't seen the. Once I see like the like what it turns into, that'll make mm-hmm. sense. I mean, yeah. you can ask about my bedding situation. It's very difficult to describe. Uh, what is your bedding situation? She did when we were at the conference. Before she showed me the prototype, she actually did do an interview. A little interview, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so my bedding situation depends if it, if it's the summer or the winter. Hmm. I have. Um, Summer, just I just I don't have any air conditioning, so there's not a whole lot of bedding going on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, okay. Wait, winter, I have the. Uh... Winter, he doesn't have any heat, so there's a lot of bedding going on. <laughs> oh, I got, I Basically, got he lives in a tent. I got no, of, he doesn't. Really <laughs> um, he lives in a drafty apartment. So. There is, uh, of course, the the fitted sheet mm-hmm. of, you know, classic fame. Then there is uh, a kind of polyester. Uh, oh, and then there's the and then there's like the 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 sheet above the fitted sheet. Mm-hmm. And then there's a polyester blanket and then there's a larger blanket. And then okay. there is, and then there is the uh, the cat blanket. <laughs> I was gonna say at the feet. Then of, there's the, the cats. The yeah. The the nice. Yeah. Nice. So does that sheet above the fitted sheet uh, come untucked? Well, this is this is a this is a bit of a problem because um, I I I I can't have that that sheet uh, be tucked in too much because it just the size of my bed and where my pillows are or whatever it uh the way i sleep it like crimps my legs down yeah you feel trapped yeah Mm -hmm. yeah and i and i definitely i definitely need like a looser i need to be able to like feel like i'm not a prisoner right does it does it bunch up on you um not too much i'm a pretty uh I don't move around too much when I sleep, mm-hmm. but you know, yeah, everything it definitely happens from time to time. It's not perfect. It's just a sheet. Yeah. Do you make your bed every day? No. <laughs> Why not? Why would you? <laughs> I mean, it's not like a mess. Like the thing is, is that like, you know, I get in, it's like, it's like, um, I'm only, it's only like the quarter of it that's ever you know, not in the correct location. So okay. I just, I just wow. never, I just never really. It's honestly, it's, it's looking, it's, it's pretty neat. It's looking pretty good. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I, I know some people well, who like make their bed like every night it, but... and like, I don't have a duvet cover. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And, you know, some people really like to have that top sheet tucked in. They want that security. Um, 
you know, that's something I've found in, in my user research. So it's not something for every single person for sure, but I've certainly found a lot of people who have these problems and don't want to have those problems anymore. Um, and, and to have a hotel perfect bed in three seconds in the morning, you just sort of fluff this thing and you've got to turn down neat bed to come home to in the evening creates a little bit of inner calm. Yeah, I, yeah, I know. I definitely believe it. Yeah, yeah. I think I'm, I'm probably a customer. Danielle, thank you so much for coming on and letting me grill you. Thank you so much for having me. On user testing and uh, best of luck with the uh, trio bedding. And, and I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to, uh, to when it's uh, available at the, what would we call that, at the mass market level. Yeah. And uh, I, I'm going to try it out. And I guess I'm going to see you at some conference in the future. Yes. As we usually Definitely. do. So if people want to get hold of you for either the betting or for user testing, what is the best way for them to reach you? Sure. I try to be easy to find as DG Cooley, just about everywhere. And that's uh, C-O-O-L-E-Y. Yes. So that's yeah. LinkedIn or uh, dgcooley.com or DG Cooley on Twitter. Uh, so that would be DG Cooley at, or Danielle at DG Cooley. I'm sorry. Danielle at DG Cooley.com. Yes. Got it. All right. And we'll put a link to that in our, in our notes. All right. Happy betting. Thank you. Talk to you later. <laughs> Bye. 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 Bye.